The Holy Spirit attend our reading of the Word and our study of it, that we may be joyful, faithful doers of it. Hear the Word of God from Genesis 17. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring through, after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money, from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant." Any circumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, 
shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. Before Christmas, you studied Genesis 15 and that iconic chapter of God making his covenant with Abraham is something that you've already discussed. Let me remind you, for those who may not have been here, or uh, just to bring to mind for the rest of you, because the context of Genesis 17 is tied into Genesis 15. There's that curious uh, interspersed uh, story of Hagar and what went on, but think of this as the continuation of this covenant tale that has gone on of God saying, I will choose whom I will choose, and I will make men and women something that they are not and could not be. So it is with Abraham. You know in Genesis 15, there's that wonderful story of the sacrifices that were offered, the uh, heifer, the female goat, the ram, turtle, dove and pigeon, which was to prefigure uh, later the sacrifices that were offered in the temple. In this section of God's word, he reveals himself as being a covenant maker, a covenant keeper, and the one who blesses those who keep his covenant. As you'll remember, the uh, sacrifices were interspersed with the smoking fire pot, which is God's presence coming through as Abraham fell into uh, a dream. And what went on there was very simply God saying, I'm making this covenant, a uh, ritual known in the Near and Middle East, but if the provisions of the covenant are not met, I will be the one who will take on the punishment. So what God is saying is, I'm making a covenant with Abraham, and if this does not happen, and all that I said I would do does not occur, I will take that punishment, and I will be destroyed, like the sacrifices were. This is the context in which now, as God speaks in this, we'll, we'll call it the covenant made even more clear, ratified, and Abraham and Sarah 
are made even more aware of what God's specific plan is. Well, there's a short time, I'm saying that tongue-in-cheek, that Abram has to wait. Actually, it's 13 years. You look at um, chapter 16, the last verse, and chapter 17, the first verse, and Abram's age, and you see that 13 years has passed, and God gives us none of that history that went on. Uh, so you don't know what, what has gone on, except that uh, he and Sarah have decided that God's promise is not going to be what they're going to wait on. And so they have that situation that you looked at with Barton last week, where Abram and Sarah decide they're going to bring Hagar, and they're going to decide on their own how God is going, how God is going to bless them. Now, we can be a little hard on Abraham with that, but don't we all have that same tendency uh, when we know that God may have a plan? And don't we have some notion of saying, here's my plan, God, bless it. Well, that's what Abram was doing in that chapter with Hagar. Well, we come here and see more of why it has to be this way, not only because God has commanded it, but because the history of whom he is going to be faithful in the covenant has to come about, no matter how great a guy Ishmael was, no matter how much uh, Abraham uh, and Sarah wanted to uh, see God's blessing come, the heir had to be Isaac. First, we look at the parties in the covenant. Uh, first thing in your outline and first we'll note the names of Abraham and Sarah as they're changed. And there's a lot been said about what the significance of the name change is. Linguistically, uh, etymologically, it's, it's like saying uh, Rob or Robbie or Tim or Timmy. Uh, there isn't anything about Abram and Abraham that has such great content in the actual letters that are used there. What is really significant is what Abram's name meant. His name meant, well, surprisingly, father of many. Now you can imagine what that was like in a society where you're living in tents, everybody knows everybody's business, there isn't much that's going on day or night that isn't known in that sort of nomadic community. And uh, how would it be that if uh, uh, you were told you were going to have a lot of money and you were poor, and every time somebody went by you, they said, hello, money bags. Wouldn't that, my dad had a friend when I was young, and I didn't, he worked in the factory, so he was not a wealthy man, but he worked the shifts in which you got double pay or overtime. And when my dad would see that guy, he'd say, hey, money bags. And I would say to dad, is he really that rich? And my dad said, no, he just works a lot and he never spends any money. And so I don't remember what that man's name is today. I'm certain he's dead by now because he was older than my dad. But 
it made clear that the name given to him was something that he knew. And I think the guy liked it a little bit. He may not have, but he'd always say, oh, Marvin, you always say, I don't have that much money. Oh, yes, you do, money bags. Well, here, every time Abram went by, people say, Abram, father of many. Yeah, right. Uh, you're an old man. You're not the father of anybody. People were saying through his 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, uh, into 80s. And how would that be if you knew that you were the inheritor of a promise of God and your name said it, but it wasn't true? So here he's born this opprobrium all these decades. So what God is saying is, when you were a heathen, Abram, with Terah, in the land of Ur, the Chaldees, and your people knew nothing about me. This is some of the significance of Abraham being a pagan and God calling him. There is no way at all that his family could have thought, well, young Abram, he's going to be a great guy. And uh, but no, they had nothing to know because they didn't know who the real God was. So they gave him a name, the father of many. Now what God is saying is, I am changing it, and I am saying Abraham. And what he's meaning is, you are really the father of many. I've given you this name, and now what you were given before in ignorance, I am ratifying. Isn't that incredible? But God is also saying something about his name as well. In um, the last chapter... Hagar very tenderly calls God El Roy, R-O-I, if you translate it, uh, transliterate it into English. It's the God who sees me. When Melchizedek came along, he was known as the prophet of God Most High, El Elyon, God Most High. Here, God is revealing himself, and he is saying, I am El Shaddai. You've heard that. There was a song out about 20 or 30 years ago. El Shaddai, El Shaddai, Echom Kona Adonai. It was translated from Hebrew, and that was very popular in the Christian community. It means God Almighty. So what God is saying is, when I'm giving names, and when God names names, it really comes about. When I'm giving a name, it is from my authority as the God Almighty, which is what El Shaddai means, or the God who is sufficient. So God is powerful. He's also the one who is entirely sufficient as well. Now, there are provisions of the covenant as well. And they're very simple. Well, they're very simple as you look at them. Hard to do, aren't they? Walk before me and be blameless. Well, that's the same provisions of what we know are the provisions of God's wanting us to live. Every morning, aren't you thinking something like, what would God have me to do today? How would he have me to walk? How would he want me to conduct my life? And don't we know that the provision is that we will be blameless? 
what we understand on this side of the cross is that we don't have to try to figure that out, but it's explicitly done for us in the finished work of the Lord Jesus, but it's also laid out for us in Holy Scripture as well. Well, there are parties in the covenant, Abram, Abraham now, and God. There are provisions of the covenant, two of them, walk before me and be blameless. Well, there are the ultimate promises of the covenant as well. It's going to be many descendants. He's going to be the father of many nations. Sarah is going to be the mother of many nations. Kings shall come from Abram and Sarah. And then there is, as I said, that name change to the parties of the covenant. And I want to say a bit more about Abram and this name change. There is a miraculous event going to happen here. The incredible, embarrassing infertility will now be changed into abundant fertility for Abraham and Sarah. You'll note there the repeated emphasis on kings and nations and offspring. It's made clear that it's not going to be the people in just a little bit of land, but wherever your pilgrimage or your sojournings may go, your places here, there, and everywhere that you're going to go are going to be filled with these people. This is easy to run past because it's said a number of times. And you can think, okay, kings and nations and many descendants. But look ahead and think, well, what was that meant to say to us? Well, it was meant to prefigure that wonderful apocalyptic vision of John at the end of the New Testament where John, even speaking by the Holy Spirit, doesn't have language in his vocabulary to say how many of these people are. But he looks up in heaven and he sees that wonderful vision and he says, and you can just imagine him speaking by the Holy Spirit saying, there were myriads and myriads and, and, and ten thousands upon ten thousands. There, weren't, there wasn't something in his vocabulary and perhaps not in his understanding to name who is that great host in the new heavens and the new earth. So what God is saying here, and it's always wonderful to see the context of how God goes back to the beginning and says, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to create heaven and earth, the seas, the sky, and all that is in them, and create humankind as the apex of creation. And then he says to our first parents that you have the responsibility to go forth and multiply. And it's going to be abundant. He reaffirms that uh, to Noah after the destruction of the world by water. But says what has happened in the fall is not negated by the fall. What has happened in his judgment uh, with Noah is not negated by the sinfulness of the world. It has always been God's intention. From the creation mandate, from what we are called here to do as God's vice regents in the world, to populate it, to be in it everywhere, to subdue it, to lovingly nurture it, 
there's a reaffirmation here with Abraham that his descendants will fill and subdue the earth. That's finally fulfilled in the new heavens and the new earth. Now, Abraham could not have seen that in all the splendor that we have as we wait for the Lord Jesus to return. But that ought to inspire us in seeing how God has so wonderfully planned this. And when it may have looked to the demonic powers that, well, this isn't going to happen. God has said through this old man uh, that all the world's going to be filled with that. How odd that must have looked like. What derision may have happened in the mouths, from the mouths of Abram's neighbors, from the powers and principalities that look and jeer. The whole world and this old man and this old woman can't even have one child? How could that possibly be? What's going to happen? Well, this is what El Shaddai was meant to teach them. The God who is all-powerful, the God who is all-sufficient will do it. This is where God says, I will see to it. I will make it happen. Well, we get to number four. There's the covenant sign of circumcision. There is a principal obligation of humankind in the covenant. That is simply to be circumcised. God has used signs uh, throughout the Old Testament. We've been studying them at Second Presbyterian as we've looked at uh, Pharaoh and uh, what God did to say that he was sovereign uh, in all the uh, plagues that he brought on Egypt. Uh, one scripture verse here is Exodus uh, 7, 3 through 5. We won't read those. But there's also that's the sign that God is going to do what he wants in prophecies as well. Uh, Ezekiel is an example of that. Think of uh, God telling Ezekiel, now for 300 plus days, you're going to lie on one side, you're going to be tied up in a certain fashion, and then you're going to be able to have to lie on the other side, etc. So you have to be thinking in, in all that detail that God gives to Ezekiel to say to Israel, this is going to be the nature of my judgment upon you. And I'm graphically showing it by my prophet, who is physically in the midst of you, tied up and lying on one way, tied up and lying on the other way, eating this prescribed Spartan meal. And here, Ezekiel, this wonderful man of God, and we could all say Ezekiel on his worst day was more holy and obedient than we are on what we think of as our best day. But Ezekiel still has to say, okay, God, you want me to eat food that's cooked on dung? Ezekiel's thinking, I am a man of integrity, and I do only what you said. And you said, God, we should not touch anything unclean. And dung is forbidden for a human person to have that sort of contact with. You can imagine Ezekiel's thinking, I'm going to be obedient to you, God. Certainly you don't want me to eat food cooked in human dung. The backstory is God says, well, of course I don't. I prescribe that you would not do that. You will eat food that's cooked on animal dung. 
start cooking, Ezekiel. You've got a whole lot of days to go through this. Well, this again is graphically to show that God is saying that the nation of Israel is so foul and polluted that there's going to be a sign that comes and it's his prophet. Well, signs are often used to remind us, for example, that the, uh, that the eating of unleavened bread was meant throughout the generations to remind Israel of the exodus and their obligation to keep the law. We see that in Exodus 13.9, Deuteronomy 6.8, Deuteronomy 11.18. I'll mention those again. Exodus 13.9, Deuteronomy 6.8, and 11.18. Circumcision is a sign that Abraham's descendants will be exceedingly great in number. Just as the rainbow in the Noahic covenant reminds us of God's commitment to preserve the earth, so circumcision is meant to be a sign that is so graphic that every male, not once or twice, but numbers of times throughout the day, is going to be physically reminded when he looks at his member, God is faithful. Now, can you imagine anything that is more graphic? He is saying, this is such a preeminent promise. I'm going to bring it home to you in such a way you cannot possibly forget it. What man is ever, ever going to forget this? We came from a man who was circumcised, unlike all those dirty heathens among all the nations, and their physical, mental, moral, culinary impurities, we are different. And they were meant to think we are different because of who our Father is. And they are reminded of it. And by extension, the assumption is they are teaching all the women folk in all of their families. I bear the mark of God in me. Father Abraham received this from God himself, and I have it. And I'm going to translate to you in every generation what it means to be a son or a daughter of God. They're never going to be able to forget that, ever. No circumstance. And to show the inclusive nature of the covenant, God says, Abraham, anybody who's living among you, he was stressing the physical, the physical nature of the kingdom in these people. All the men that you bought, all who are your slaves, every man among you, you are to be a holy nation so that you all see that the blessing of the covenant can be yours. The foreigners! Those whom you brought among you, what a blessing this is going to be for these people to come among my covenant people. Now, it's just interesting that there's this prior expectation. Not just that you're going to have the physical mark, but you have to walk before me, and you have to be blameless. God is saying, 
It's not enough to have the physical sign. You must have the spiritual sign as well. Yes, circumcision is a sign that Abraham's descendants will be exceedingly great in number. But it is also a sign, as with Noah, that God is not going to destroy the world by water, and you have that promise sure enough. But it's also saying, if you don't do right, I'll destroy it again. I'll renew it again. It won't be by water. But if you don't do what I say, I'll come in judgment. And the new heavens and the new earth are saying that what will happen, everything will be made new through the refurbishing of the creation by fire. The inclusive nature of the covenant we cannot pass by as men without seeing that it comes to women as well. Now, I don't know what Mary said to the women in discussing this, but I have to think that she made at least some passing reference to that fact. Sarah's name is changed to Sarai, and it means what? If somebody knows you can say it straight out, and Price Morrison may give you $20 if you get it. Ah, <laughs> oh, well, you got it yourself. Reward yourself. Price, take this jacket. I've got to preach in here, and I've got warm. Uh, <laughs> thank you. Yes, it's princess. You can keep your $20. So she is a princess. We often refer to a really fine man as a prince among men. Have you not done that? When I said that about someone, uh, I think that man's a prince among men, preeminent. Well, Sarah is a princess. You look at verses 15 through 17, 19 and 21, she's extolled. She's a prefigure of that one whom all generations will call blessed, Mary. But Abraham is ever the bargainer. He always is going to want it his way. It wasn't enough that he had that interlude in chapter 16 with Hagar. That man is still fixed on, it's got to be Ishmael. Now, it's very easy to be judgmental and be hard on Father Abraham, but the brother's 99 years old, and he's saying, God, I'm believing you, but this is the way I can get it done for you. I've got this little boy. You know, he's 13 years. He's coming into his manhood, and oh, that it would be Israel. He still doesn't get it. No, he doesn't get it because there is a comic scene here, and it is funny. When God comes to Abraham, now when God comes to people most time, there's fear, and there's obedience, as there was when God made the covenant and Abraham bowed down. I'm not going to act this out because I may get down and one of the doctors will have to come get me up. But Abraham falls down, he says, oh! And that old woman, oh, no, 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 no. He falls down on the ground, and he says, in his mind at least, that's not happening. And everybody who would have heard that would have thought, no, 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 not in that tent. No, 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 no. 
But God, but God, every time we say that, it's not a bad but. Sometimes when people come to you, I want to say something, but, and when someone does that so often, why don't you give me the bad news? But when the scripture says, but God, oh, that's a blessing. But God, that always means something wonderful and delightful. It's going to be a blessing. But God had the notion, but Isaac will be your heir. Grace will come to Ishmael. Verse 20. That, that's a wonderful thing to think of, that in God's economy, he would have been quite just, as he always is just in all his works, to say, you took Ishmael, you took Hagar, and got Ishmael, in your unbelief. That's not what I wanted. But he says to this young boy, I'm going to bless you. Twelve great ones are going to come from you. Many kings shall come from you, but, but Isaac, verse 21, a pivotal passage. And here's, this is the fulcrum where everything goes this way or that way. It rests on that. Fine, you've got Ishmael. I'm going to take care of the boy. I'm going to bless him. But Isaac shall be my heir. And in those verses 22 through 27, there is the exacting, I would say it's excruciating to read, detail of what went on for all of the people, all the men, to bear God's mark. A bloody, painful time. But we would trust a time of rejoicing that they are marked and their descendants forever with the sign of God. What is the sign that we understand as those born on this side of the cross is the fulfillment of circumcision? Well, it's baptism. And whether you believe in adult baptism or infant baptism is irrelevant in this discussion. You see it as the completion of what God says, whether it comes to infants presented by believing parents, if it comes to those of a reasonable age or adults, it's saying the same thing. And we will be united in saying that it is from God that God's people will bear his sign. We still bear it. And we don't see it physically because the glory of God is so revealed that the power of what baptism symbolizes, there is not holy water. There is a holy God who commands that this water shall symbolize something that is even more potent than a cutting. It will symbolize that the Holy Ghost is in you. It is predicated on the understanding that covenant obligations that we looked back before still must be met. We are still obligated. 
with the covenant obligations that are exacting, that call us in every fiber of our being to walk blameless before God. Walk before him. Do the right thing. Do absolutely the right thing. Even more than that, you must do perfectly the right thing, even bearing baptism. For the Israelites, it was a simple thing of being cut. And then they had to think, ah, as the obligations unfold, where they could go, what they could eat, who they could touch, what, what they could be involved with, what was clean, what was unclean, who was unclean and who was clean, what area of the world was thought of as unclean. For us, we look and we say the whole world belongs to Jesus. The whole world, he says, is mine. And you are to go forth to proclaim the goodness of my kingdom and to tell them that there is liberty and freedom because the exacting personal work that one would have had to do in the understanding of the Old New Testament is now superseded by the finished work of Jesus. When we look at the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, sometimes we can easily get confused and confuse others about, well, you know, in the, in the Old Covenant, some people say God was like this, and he's, he's different in the New Covenant. Wrong! He's the same eternal God from forever to forever, and he never changes. What is markedly different in the Old Covenant and the New Covenant is the understanding that there's one overarching covenant of redemption, covenant of grace. It is the administration of grace in the old and the new. Be careful how we look at that. The exacting nature of what Old Testament believers were called upon to do is superseded, finished, accomplished. As a great theologian, John Murray has written thin book that is full of meaning, redemption accomplished and applied. That's why the covenant is signed, sealed, and delivered in Jesus Christ. It is all done, finished, accomplished, and by his grace applied to our hearts, the glory of redemption is that we don't have to try to figure out, have we done things just right? Have we prayed just right? When I confessed Jesus in September of 1972, I went back the next week, same minister, same church, and I said, I want to pray that prayer again. I want to make sure I got it right. He was an evangelical man full of grace. He said, Tim, I prayed that with you. What makes you think that you didn't believe what you said? I said, I'm uncertain. He said, did you believe who Jesus is? And did you confess you're a sinner? Yes, Scott, I did. Yes, sir. I said, then you ought to believe the promise of God. He said, okay, I'm going to pray that prayer with you one more time. And that's it. And he led me to what it was to know assurance. And we have that assurance that Jesus did it all.
Jesus paid it all. And he tells us it is so clear that you don't have to divine to figure out what to pray or what to pray. Because when you pray, you've already been touched by his spirit that prompts us to pray. Because dead men don't pray. And they don't pray the right way. They don't pray with a prayer that they know God has heard because his son says, I put that prayer in him. I put that prayer in her. So it's accepted. So the grace is so great that the number of people is more than we can imagine. And that the way it happens is more than we can imagine. And whether we've come with a prayer on a date and a place, et cetera, et cetera, or we've been wooed in that wonderful way by the Holy Spirit in which we understand that we've been saved from having outward, awful redemption of sin and rebellion, however it is. It's a path that God calls us and woos us, and it's always the Holy Spirit calling each one of us and saying, now you're a part of that number that cannot be calculated that Abraham was promised. Ah, oh, grace, grace, grace. Oh, it's amazing grace. He's a strong deliverer, isn't he? Abraham knows that something miraculous is to happen, but we know it more fully. And we know in the Old Testament that one of the most damning condemnations on Israel was that they lived as ones with uncircumcised hearts. They had the sign. They confessed it. We know people who may confess their, their baptism, their church membership, their spiritual works. But apart from walking in the forgiveness and the gospel of Jesus, we can be as pitiful, as pitiable as those of the promise who daily often were reminded of the sign that they had not the grace that accompanied it. And it is sobering to us. And it is why every day for the people of God should be a reaffirmation of our covenant relationship, of our covenant fellowship, made perfect for all eternity Signed, sealed, delivered as the son's offering to his father of perfect obedience, which the father in grace, as the scripture teaches, then gives as the whole world to his son to reign over. And the will of his only begotten son is to us to have the nations as his inheritance. That's what the Messiah has promised in Psalm 2. That is what he gives to us. The promise of the new heavens and the new earth to reign over because what he said he'd do through Adam and Eve and what he promised he'd do through Abraham is being accomplished in us in every way as we go throughout Memphis and Shelby County and every place around the world saying, this is God. This is the mighty God. This is the deliverer.
This is El Shaddai. And this is what he'll do for you in this life. And he will be El Shaddai at the moment of your death when he takes you to heaven as well. And gives you time to wait for a new body in the new heavens and the new earth. And he's saying, I can do it. And I can do it for the thousands upon ten thousands and the myriad of myriads whom I have determined to save and spiritually came from that one old man and that one old woman who were full of faith and full of grace. And we all bear allegiance to that same God of the covenant. Blessed be his glorious name forever and ever, world without end. God, thank you that we are sons and daughters of the covenant forever. Glory be to your name. Amen.